I have here the sign-up sheet for the coffee. Do we have your attention? I'm going to pass that if anyone would be willing to sign up. Um, or we can just keep passing out. But um, we need someone to sign up for the remainder of June. Anthony, oh, Elsa, a number of people. Elsa trains people in it. Anthony normally does, but he's away on military service right now, so he is indisposed the next two weeks. But uh, yeah, if you're willing, but you don't know how to do it, we, there's a whole bunch of people who can help you. All right, fantastic. Okay. Um, alrighty. This this morning was a bit of a heavy psalm. Questions, thoughts, confusion. Um, let's 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 dive in. First off, how many of you guys recognize that piece of music I was talking about, Carmina Burana, O Fortunata? I guarantee, if you've watched any modern movies, you've heard it a thousand times. They always use it to uh, to make things seem really ominous and intense. It starts off dum ba dum dum bum 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 ba dum bum bum, and then like the then they like they triple the volume as they start singing. Yeah, it's, uh, it's memorable. I, I'm sure you'd recognize it if you heard it. But, um, yeah, no, I remember stumbling across it my first year in college, and then I picked up a CD of it, and I tried to figure out what the Latin was, and I was like, oh, dear. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay, Any, with, that, with that introduction of Carmina Burana, questions or thoughts on Psalm 39? Okay, I have a hard time believing that wasn't that. Okay, it's a pretty, it's a pretty heavy psalm. If not, I got, I got some themes we can run through. Um, I, oh, Jake, go. I really appreciated going to Job this morning, yeah. and. Um, I think for those people who've only read the beginning and the end of Job, like Job loses all his stuff and becomes miserable, and God restores Job and Job's happy again, highly recommend the rest of the story because yeah. some of that stuff is so... When you read through that, if you have suffered before, if you've gone through really bad trials before, you've probably thought a lot of those things before. So highly recommend the rest of Job. It's really good. Yeah. speaks to that. I think, I think one of the reasons why, I think it's probably two reasons why people steer away from the middle of Job. The first two chapters, the narrator tells us, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips or accuse God of wrong. So we know from an, an infallible narrator standpoint, everything Job says in the first two chapters, rock solid. And certainly his confession at the end of the Lord showing everything the Lord God says is good. But Job only inerrantly records what is said by these people. And we know that Job ultimately sins with his lips, that he does accuse God of wrong. And we know that his friends speak half-truths. And so it can be a mess. In fact, I think in the wisdom literature, part of the point of Job is that we would wrestle through and figure out what of what Job is saying and what of what Eliphaz is saying and what of what Bildad the Shuite is saying is true and where do they err? That you're not dealing with pure truth in regards to the things they say. You've got a true record of what they said, but there's a sense in which it's kind of like a riddle that you've got to figure out because what I read today from Job, I think if you're honest, we can be tempted to think that. And so you go, okay, where, where is he an error here? Where does this go off? What is he leaving out? Sometimes we can speak a half-truth and we're, li- we're leaving out important truth. Other times we're just dead wrong. And those middle chapters are meant to be things we wrestle through, which again suggests that God expects, anticipates that these very issues we will be wrestling through. This is one of the oldest books, if not the oldest book of the Bible, is you know, 36 chapters in the middle or so of wrestling with God and evil in the world and suffering and, you know, God does not expect us to read one or two verses on the problem of evil and suffering and be like, okay, I got it. He gave us chapter after chapter after chapter wrestling through this, many of the Psalms dealing with this. Um, and so I, I take comfort from the fact that if this is not an easy thing to wrap your head around, 
God didn't expect it to be. <laughs> right? No. And, and your point about reading, you know, most series on the book of Job or, you know, a couple messages on chapter one or two, one or two messages just doing a massive overview of the next 36 chapters, and then we slow down right at the end again. And um, the, book, the book is big for a reason. Yeah. Other thoughts or questions or anything? Sarah, use the microphone. I'm wondering what got David to the point where he could accept what was going on. Because it seems like it's a really quick progression, and for us, that's not normally how it goes. It takes a long time to come to accept what God is doing. Yeah. Well, I think part of it is we don't know how long he waited. He, he, we, he starts speaking after he waited. And so weeks, months, years... But because he didn't do what Job did, like, like I said, part of this thing lining up, Job saying, I, I am upset, and so I am going to speak. And David saying, no, I, I put a muzzle on my mouth. Gave him some clarity. It's also possible that David is thinking, has read through Job. He's even got other scripture. Well, he certainly has other scripture. Um, we're not certain when Job was written, but it's likely one of the oldest books of the Bible. And so David may have had that help as well. Job, as far as we can tell, has no scripture. There's no references to the books of Moses or anything in Job. So Job may well simply be working off of what he has orally heard of God and what he knows through natural revelation, but he certainly has a lot less to work with than David, who's got the books of Moses, likely Job, and other books. But I'd say in this case, it's the waiting. I mean, David... Verse 4, at least has the, the presence of mind to recognize, and I think this is the first thing we can do. I know this can't be the right answer, so I need some instruction. I turn to Psalm 73, similar, uh, similar type of problem. Here more specifically dealing with the problem of evil, the prosperity of the wicked, the prosperity of the godless, and you get the same type of, I almost thought this and I knew that wasn't the right answer but I wasn't sure what the right answer was. And sometimes that's where we're at. Like, I'm tempted to say this, and I know that's wrong, but I'm not sure what's right. So Psalm 73, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sick. And he goes through this whole thing um, about how they prosper and don't appear to suffer. And he says, um, pick it up in verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, the increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. So David is this David? Is Asaph? Asaph tells us what he was tempted to say. He was tempted to say, "I it's been a waste of time trying to be godly. It's been pointless trying to do what's right." And he gives voice to the lie he's tempted to say, and he says, "Okay, I know that's not. If I had said that, I would have betrayed the generation of children." Verse sixteen. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed a worrisome task. Okay, I knew that wasn't the right answer. As tempted as I was to say that, I knew that's not right. But working through this is hard. Verse 17, until I went to the sanctuary of God, there I discerned their end. So David, the Asaph, I keep saying David, Asaph didn't know how to resolve this problem until he gathered at the temple for worship. And there, and in that context, he gets clarity. And his ultimate answer is, again, eschatological. Verse 18, truly you set them in slippery places, you make their feet fall to ruin. How they're destroyed in a moment, swept away by utterly by terrors. Which is to say, no matter how good they've got it in this life, their life is short, and they die, and they face judgment. And so what does it matter if Stalin lived like a king for 40, 50 years? He did. Killed millions of people. He stood before the living God. And the little of his life is nothing. Um, and he says, by comparison... Verse 23, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. 
and afterward you will receive me to glory. Which is to say, I have you right now, and I get to go with you to glory when I die. And that's ultimately how David balances, I'm going to keep saying David, Asaph, balances out the problem of the prosperity of the wicked. That, that there is a life after this, that all wrongs are righted, things get balanced out, and if you lose sight of that, you will begin to think, if, if all you've got is this perspective, if all you're looking at is this world, and you're not looking at the world beyond, behind it, this world will look utterly vain and worthless and pointless. Um, that's, that's the point of the book of Ecclesiastes, that's the point of this psalm. He forgot the end of the wicked, he forgot his end, and so he began to think, what is the point of trying to pursue faithfulness? Doesn't seem any point. Oh yeah, there's a life after this. Oh yeah, there's a judgment that's coming. Oh, and oh yeah, I get God with me now. Okay, that, that makes sense. But th- those are the types of things you've got to add into your perspective uh, to, to make sense of some of these things. And then they're difficult. As- Asaph acknowledges as much. So, so David gives himself time, and he apparently used his time wisely, whether he was in prayer, whether he was reading Job, other passages, or whether he was just meditating on himself. He, he manages to refrain from stumbling. He man- manages to refrain from speaking wrongly. And he draws some really profound conclusions. And then, of course, the psalm is given to us so that we could not have to recreate the wheel <laughs> and learn from his learning and not have to go through the same process. Um, yeah. Good question. Other questions? Questions? Oh, in the back. I just want to also say there's so much fruit that comes out of struggles. Um, And since we're on the other side of the cross and our focus is on Christ, when people watch us go through struggles and we trust God, that's fruit, that's a witness. And I know a couple weeks ago we were talking about how you can witness at work. You just be and you live when you are trusting and focusing on Christ. No well, matter what. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Absolutely. And this isn't even, Psalm, Psalm 39 isn't even the fullness of the answer. There's other things you could add in to it. Certainly, like you're saying, God, 1 Peter 3 makes this point, 2 and 3 makes this point emphatically. God uses the willing suffering of his people who suffer well evangelistically. So keep your contact when the Gentiles pure, so that when they ask for the hope that is within you, you have a reason to give. Um, likewise, you wives, when your husbands without a word as they observe your, and he talks about servants who submit. It, there's people putting up with mistreatment, putting up with being wronged, serving as unto God, which is causing other people to go, wait a sec, what's their hope in? Because if, if you get back to the Carbina Barana that I was quoting earlier, when the world's attempts to fool themselves, and that's what they largely do. I'm going to live forever. I'm never going to die. My life's meaningful. I'm important. And you can believe that for so long, but eventually the, 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 the reality sinks in, right? Um, then you raise your fist and you say, what is the point? You give up and you curse God and you die. Or you look at somebody else who had their world shaken and they're not doing this. And you say, what on earth is holding them up? What on earth is... Is caught. Now, people don't say that when they see someone in a good attitude who's prospering. This is the problem in the prosperity gospel. One of the problems, there's a lot of problems in the prosperity gospel. But no one is going to look at a millionaire and say, how are you so full of joy? I don't understand how you're so full of joy with your Lexus and your jet. And your... But when someone experiences loss and suffering and rejoices and is, is, still has hope, yeah, the world's like, I, I don't get that. And so God uses that. Um, the, the, the suffering of the early church was what's caused it to spread. Why are these people being crucified and killed and martyred when all they have to do is worship the Roman gods? What could be so valuable about this Jewish God and his son Jesus that these people are willing to suffer so much? And it caused people to be interested in looking into it. Um, so yeah, there's a lot more we could add. Paul talks about how his sufferings help him identify with Christ. He says, in my body, in Colossians 2, I, for my part, fill up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. And you go, whoa, what are you saying, Paul? 
John Piper's got a great sermon, Doing Missions When Dying is Gain. I'll let him answer it in that one. But his, his answer is basically Christ's suffering as an atonement for sin is complete, but Christ's suffering as the means of getting the message out is being accomplished through his body, the church. And that task has not been completed. And so Paul is doing his part in completing that suffering through, through his body. Um, so you could add a lot more about what this is doing. Psalm 39 is simply dealing with one slice. God used this to make me realize this life isn't my home and to remind me that I need to set my hope on him, and he's doing this to get me to take my sin more seriously. So, okay. That's not even the fullness of the answer you can give. That's just one slice of the, of the pie, as it were. But it's a true and sufficient slice. You know, does that make any sense? But, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm ranting. His grace is sufficient. His grace is sufficient. You guys may have noticed the songs we're singing this morning. We're kind of gearing up for this. We sing this well with my soul. Whatever my God ordains is right. God moves in a mysterious way. That wasn't accidental. Carol, Carol Hardy did a nice job of, of picking out some appropriate songs to sing. Other thoughts or questions or anything? Mitchell. So I, I agree with you that Job um, did condemn God. But then in James chapter 5, uh, verse 11, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Yeah. What is the steadfastness of Job? Well, I think it's a bunch of things, but most notably and amazingly, it's where the author says, in all this, Job did not sin. Job initially, Job, it's as time goes on, and this is the other thing I've seen, sometimes when the, when the whirlwind comes, I've seen people for a couple days stand, be faithful, God is good. When you've got to live that, Job's friends show up, and eventually, as they start saying Job, basically they show up with a prosperity light gospel. I talked about the prosperity light gospel a week or two ago, which is basically, if you're good and faithful, basically you'll have a smooth enough life. So when, when Job's life blows up, I mean, just cataclysmic, all of his children killed, house collapses, all of his wealth gone, his health gone, his friends show up, and, and, they, and they're well-meaning. Job, we love you. Clearly, God is just and righteous, and he's clearly singled you out for some discipline, so you must have done something. Why don't you just confess it, and then it can be over? And he hears that long enough, and he starts saying, I mean, what I take Job, like in Job 7, where he says, why, do you, why not just forgive my sins? Why is this? this is a man who already is being very, very, very careful to obey God. He, he offers prayers and sacrifices for his children in the event that they committed unintentional sins. And this is a very, very observant guy. And so I think what he's saying is something like, Lord, I'm really careful to try to obey you, so if something slips past, can't you give me a hall pass? Like, seriously? Now, the answer is no. Like, when he says, who, what is that to you? It's a lot to God. And, and we know that, and we see that in the cross, that it's a lot. But that's what Job's tempted to say. is like, give me a break. That phrase... Will you not turn away to let me swallow my spit is, is close to our English expression, let me catch my breath. Like, just <laughs> ease up for a moment. Let me catch my breath, seriously. In doing that, I think he's, I think he's wrong. But I, th- I think what we're meant to be amazed at in Job is his first uh, two responses in chapter 1 and in chapter 2 where the narrator comes in and tells us, man, he, he did what was right. And then over the course of this reasoning, he does start to indict God. And that's exactly where God shows up and he says, would you indict me to justify yourself? So I see hints of that even as early as chapter 7. But that, that is what we're, it's chapters 1 and 2, I think, that we're told to, to emulate in Job. But no, it's, no, it's a good question. And part of the riddle of the book of Job is where is Job right, where is Job wrong, where are his friends right, where are his friends wrong? We know there's something for them all to be rebuked by God for. And yet, when you read through it, part of you can be like, yeah, I get why you're saying that, Job. And, and so it's, it's, it's a riddle, in a sense, of trying to figure out where, where you're looking at a falsehood, where you're looking at a truth, and where you're looking at a half-truth. In those middle chapters is... In fact, Jake earlier mentioned that, and said that I think that's why people don't read it or preach from it that often. It's, it's, it's really meant to be meditated and chewed on and worked through slowly because these are meant you're supposed to be reading some of the smartest 
philosophical arguments of the day. And there's a lot of truth in what they're saying, and there's some error, you know? And the challenge is working through it. But anyway, that's, that's it. Yes. Renee. Sorry. I just thought of a question. In the past two or three times, probably, I've talked with people who they were mad at God. Therefore, they um, were no longer worshiping him, yeah. basically. Yeah. And so the counsel that I gave them was, God can handle your anger. Have you dealt with him about it? Have you gone to him? Right. Um, was that bad advice? Well, I think that's fine. Well, first off, I don't think pretending you're not mad when you are is, is going to fool God. So right. There is a right. sense in like, if you are angry, it's probably still better to honestly acknowledge it first. Yes. Um, I wouldn't tell someone, be angry. But the first thing, I, yeah, speak honestly with God about where yes. you're at. Absolutely. Yes. I think there's some wisdom, though, in what David says about, I'm going to, I need to chew on this some more. I need to chew. I mean, at the end of the day, the challenge for us is this. We have what seems good to us. We all have plans for our life, what would be good for us. Maybe it's, I want my kids to grow up and go to a good college. I want to reach this level of my job. I want to accomplish. And there might be good things we want. There may be nothing in Jeremy's plan that is inherently bad or wicked. And God might say, no. Now, what do I do now? Do I get mad at them? And this, this is going to come into our theology. If God exists to benefit me, then he kind of needs to explain himself. He kind of needs mm-hmm. to justify himself. Come on. If, however, he's, if, if the center of our theology is God, either we're willing to look at... I mean, the, the, hard, the hard answer is, God says, I'm more important than your dreams. And if what I have to do to get your focus off the things in this world is blow them up and dissolve them to get your focus on me, I'll do that. You okay with that? And then we have to say yes or no to that, right? Right. <laughs> so there's a very real sense in which God says, hey, I'm God. Right. How, do you, how do you feel about that? And it's tough. Now, that's not the only reality we get in Scripture. We get so many other pictures of, like, Hosea, God, going after his unfaithful people again and again and again. Mm-hmm. It's not the only side of God we see. But absolutely, there's the, hey, I'm God, and I know what I'm doing. Do you trust me? That's absolutely a part of the, the, of the picture and the puzzle of the God to whom we have to do. And the Bible does not dance around this. We do. We, we, the American church dances around this. Oh, no, God didn't have anything to do with this tragedy. Mm-hmm. God didn't, like, what are you talking about? <laughs> God raised up Pharaoh. Like, the God in the Bible is like, yeah, I did that. I mean, that's where David puts his hand over his mouth. I, I'm silent because you did this. I mean, you can almost, that, that's the conclusion Job came to, right? We know in Job, Satan himself actively did it. This gets back to last week, immediate and immediate. So the immediate cause of Job's children's death was Satan stirring up the wind that collapsed the house, right? That's the immediate cause. But the immediate cause, the the... the um, the ultimate cause is God. Job mm-hmm. says the Lord took, the Lord gave, the Lord took away. And then the narrative is lest we go, no, no, Job, it wasn't God, it was Satan. And all this, Job did not accuse God of wrong or, or sin with his lips. So, yeah, the Bible is unapologetically, God does this. And, 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 and so we find this difficult, and I think it's right that we find it difficult. This isn't supposed to be like, oh, this is easy. But it's, it's a difficult thing that we're supposed to face and wrestle with and not try to escape. And, and so often the answer is escape. No, God doesn't do that. No, that's not the way things work. When again and again, this is not some small theme in the Bible. I mean, go, go to the end of Job. The narrator, um, go to the last chapter of Job. The narrator summarizes the entire book this way. Job 42. Read verse 10 and 11. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. It then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comfort for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. What do you mean? I read the book. It was Satan who did it. Yeah, but he did it with God's permission in such a way that God's 
Yeah, I did that. There's the narrator summing up the story of Job. Mm -hmm. The story of Job is Job dealing with all the Lord did to him. That's an absolutely biblically true way of, of summing it up. Um, now we know also it was the, the activity of Satan, but God is big enough. And this is one of the earliest books in the Bible. From the very beginning, I'm God and I'm in control. You know, it's, it's the same thing we see when he appears to Moses in the cleft of the rock and Moses says, show me your glory. I have mercy and I have mercy. It, it's right out of the gate. I'm God and I'm free and I, I am sovereign. Go. Yeah, so, I mean, I totally agree with yeah. all that. Is there a way I could have counseled them better um, other than basically I felt like they were their idol was now their unforgiveness towards God. And if they just went to God directly instead of complaining about him to me, right, right. <laughs> that well, they would work it out between God and them. Right. Well, the, qu- the question, the thing, I don't know if you could have done it better. One okay. of the things you can do is ask them, put into clear words what your complaint is. If you're, gonna make, yeah. if you're angry at God, you think he's done wrong, put into clear words what you think he's done wrong. And then pull that thread. He caused my child to die. Mm-hmm. Okay, what was wrong with that? Well, well so talk it well, through I, it with I didn't him. like it. So is God mm-hmm. obligated to do what you like? Oh, yeah. I mean, I just experienced the loss of a child. Yeah. God gave, God took away. It's his to do with as he pleases. He's good and he's wise and he knows what he's doing. And we grieve and we mourn. And believing in the sovereignty of God doesn't mean we say, oh, goody. We grieve and we mourn, but I have no illusions that God could have stopped that. Mm-hmm. And in his wisdom, he didn't. And he's good. You know, and we weep, and that's that's it. And we and we know he cares and what he loves, but to press, okay, why is he obligated? Why? What? What? What is your charge? What is? What did he do? Is wrong? Get because that's when you're really going to get the idol. Yeah. Because you want to try. So you think God is obligated to do what pleases you? What happens when what pleases two people conflict with each other? Two men want the same woman to be their wife. Now, what's God obligated to do? You know, I mean, like, you start pressing them to, like, that, that's, I'm sure there's a number of ways you could enter it. I'm not saying there's a that's right answer. That's a good answer, point, though. Talk through it with Trying them. to get yeah. them to yeah. crystallize in words yeah. why, because it's one thing to grieve, and that's where we want to make right. the subtle difference. If you're just saying, this hurts, then I'll weep with you. Like, mm-hmm. no harm, no foul, great. But if you're angry at God, put in the words your charge. Put, lay it out. What's he done? Let's take a look at it. Let's see if, if, if that really holds up. You know, um, that, Thank that's, you. Yeah. Okay. Elsa. Um, yeah, about Job, the book of yeah. Job. We yeah. always talk about Job, then his three friends. And his fourth but friend. then the fourth guy comes in and really trashes them all. Yes. Because of what they've said. I, I, yeah, I tend to agree with the way Piper reads Job. He thinks that uh, it's a lie who at the end, right? It's a lie who, right? Yeah. He thinks, and I think, and I, I haven't studied Job enough to be like dogmatic. I've listened to Piper teach and preach on Job. He thinks Elihu's absolutely got the right of it, and Elihu does not get rebuked by God. Some people include Elihu with the bad guys, the bad counselors. But I, I, I tend to agree with Piper. Let me, let me show you Elihu's statement that really looks spot on. Go to Job um, 32. Yeah, this is when Elihu shows up. And interestingly, it's right after Job calls God to court. So actually, let's go to the end of 31. So Job's boldest statement is basically him saying, I wish I had some means of subpoenaing God to court. I can't. It's, it's frustrating that I can't. But I really wish I could subpoena him to court to account for himself. So look at 31, 35, and 36. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me as a crown. I would give him an account of all my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. He's he's summoning God to court. And then Elihu shows up. Um, 32.1, so these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Barachel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job. Now, what's, I think 
helps indicate Piper's right is the narrator is interpreting Elihu's anger. And the narrator tells us he burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. If I have to choose between which one of us is wrong, me or God, it's me. I mean, it's him, he's wrong, is basically. If you push me on it, Job is saying, God made a mistake. If you push me on it. And Elihu stands up and he rebukes Job. And then when God shows up and rebukes all of them, he doesn't mention Elihu. And so Elihu is read, at least by John Piper, and I, I see no reason to fault that as the voice of a righteous interloper. Um, but not all read it that way. Yeah. Other, any other thoughts or, or questions on this? Dave Kingery in the back, and then Mitchell McClure. He took too long getting the mic to me. Now I forgot what I was going to say. Okay, Mitchell. Um. <laughs> no, it, it, it's just about to come to me. I think it was uh, Satan's wager. Say, uh, Satan, Satan said that uh, it's not your fault. I'm just kidding. Flesh for flesh, he'll curse you. Yeah, he said, Job just believes you for nothing. I can. He, he just likes you because uh, you give him all these all this wealth and everything, and yeah. you, I'll take all that away from him, and uh, I'll prove that he's just just in it for the goods. And so that that was really something. And then, um, let, Charles, let, me, let me pause and say this. Yeah, think of how important we don't tend to think this, but think how important for millions of people, Job's faithfulness in that moment was. How much hangs on you're in my decision whether or not we'll grumble at God or whether or not we will worship and receive from his hand what he gives. Job had no way of knowing, and there's no indication that Job ever knew that this book gets written and how many millions upon millions of people are encouraged by his his story. You know, and so for what for Job was just a personal and private tragedy with three or four other people involved is actually this momentous story of faith and dealing with God for millions and millions of God's people. Who knows how, back to your point, God will use your suffering, my suffering, well for, for others, good. I mean, Job has no idea. I mean, imagine if you were thinking, Dave, for some suffering in your life, Lord, what is this for? And God would say, trust me, millions of my people will hear of your faithfulness and be encouraged. Job never gets told that. But it's true. Go on. Yeah. Um, the, that gets into the problem of pain, too, where atheists always try to use that. But I was listening to a uh, sermon by John MacArthur, and he was saying that nowhere in the Bible does God ever hide the fact that he is ultimately responsible right. for pain. And so I found when I'm talking to atheists and people who always bring up the issue of pain, saying, how can you believe in a God that allows blah, 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 and all that other stuff? I, uh, I uh, just take God at his word that uh, yeah. he's ultimately uh, allows that kind of thing to happen like he did Job. He permitted Satan to, to do that. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I don't know. It's, a, it's easier to make that apologetic than it is to try to get God quote unquote get God off the hook yeah. so to speak like a lot of theodicies are, are uh, doing and uh, because you can never get God off the hook if he's omniscient omnipresent omnipo- uh, the powerful yeah. one pause the word theodicy you've heard tossed around that's just the philosophical name for dealing with the problem of evil no, I just I, Dave knows the term. I know the term. I just sure everyone else knows what's being thrown out. Theodicy is the 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 guild speak for the problem of evil. Which yeah, you're talking. About, yeah. No, I, I agree with you. I mean, when someone wants to throw the problem of evil on me, okay, what's what's the problem? Well, I don't see why a good God would let this stuff happen. Okay, so. I mean, that sounds rude, but the basic point is because you can't understand it. Because you would not think of it this way, that's a problem? 
no, it's not a problem. And, and so yeah, we, we'll dance over, no, no, you misunderstand. Like, no, God says this is for the best. God says ultimately this leads to the best possible outcome. God says he knows what he's doing. That's, that's the answer, right? Um, that's, that's the answer. I don't think, of, you know, the God I believe in wouldn't allow that to happen. Well, yeah, he wouldn't because he doesn't exist. The God you're thinking of, um, sure. I mean, we're, we don't get to write the script, we get to receive the mail. We don't get to write the script. The God who is has told us who he is, and we can either accept that and deal with it, or we can be like a kid who, you know, throws a tantrum. Those are our options. We don't need, you're right. We don't need to apologize for things that God plainly says. Um, absolutely right, Dave. Mitchell. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, he took too long. I forgot. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, now, maybe you've already answered this question in a roundabout way, but uh, James 1, 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Uh, now, I think he did, but how do you think David counted it all joy in Psalm 39? I'm not convinced David initially did. We only get to hear from David after he's had time to mull it over and think about it. David is not claiming, he does not, he says he doesn't want to sin with his lips. We know he held his tongue. He might have been sinning with his heart in those early days. I don't know. By the time he gets to writing the psalm, he's not, certainly. Um, and counting on joy is a difficult, a difficult Thing counting it all joy does not mean not weeping and being sorrowful. I think it means something like reckoning, evaluating it. Like let's just take, let's just take the last week in my life. In with hope deferred makes the heart sick. Death is an alien and a, a horrible reality in the world. All of that is God doing good, teaching me what what it means to be a Christian, teaching him me his goodness. Is he, yes, is that all ultimately good for me? Yes. And James is saying, I'm to keep that in mind and keep that evaluation in mind. Um, in the same way that Hebrews 12 says, keep the discipline in mind as, as it trains you in righteousness. It, it does not mean stop being sad. Like, it does not mean stop being sad, kind of this joy. Paul speaks in 2 Corinthians 4 about outwardly perishing, inwardly being renewed. There's a yes and. There's a sorrowful and rejoicing. There's a suffering and being strengthened that is where we're living. So I think James is not saying, don't be sad, count it joy. Yay. In, with, along with the suffering is a confidence. This is working out for good. This This is... Maturing and strengthening. In James' context, it's making you mature and giving you endurance. So um, ultimately, I think that's where David gets to. I mean, kind of, if I were to summarize Psalm 39, David gets it at the end and then basically says, humbly, can, can the lesson be over? I think I get it. <laughs> I'm a sojourner and an alien with you. I was holding on too tightly to this world. I was finding too much meaning in this world. My hope is on you. You're, you're disciplining me for my good. Please stop now so that I can have some joy with what's left of my short life in you, right? I mean, that's, that's ultimately where he gets to. So to the degree that he's putting his hope in God, I think he's even seeing the good it's done. What, in, light of the, in light of the vanity of life, what, what do I have to, to hope in? What do I wait on? I wait on you. You've done it. I mean, I think even there he's seeing what God is up to in the circumstances. But seeing it and, and being aware of it, is one thing, and uh, you know, and going through it is another. Conceptually, you can say, this is for my good, and yet it still burns. And David sees it. I mean, that's one of the things I also find helpful. David sees it for his good, and he doesn't say, so keep it coming. He sees it. He recognizes God's purpose. And I, could, could you please stop? <laughs> like, that's, that's okay, too. So counting on all joy doesn't mean being a, um, I always forget, it's the sadist and the masochist who wants to suffer. Sadist. Doesn't mean being a sadist. You know, yes, thank you, sir. Can I have another? It doesn't mean that. Counting it all joy. Um, we can simultaneously, it seems good to me for this trial to be done. I know, you're, I know you're wise and I know you're good and I trust you, 
I'd, I'd like it to stop, please. That's completely fine. Uh, more than completely fine. That's what Jesus prays. Pass this cup from me. I mean, the, the most righteous man who ever lived prayed that. So you're in good company. But ultimately, like Jesus, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Is That's got to be in there with it. I think that's the key, is have your requests along with the confidence that God knows what he's doing. But Okay. Oh, back to Dave, and then Mr. Kruger. Oh, before you forget, I I didn't want anybody to think it was Matt's fault that I forgot to. Oh, okay. I I, I just he was just close by, and I just had to lay it on him. No, no, Very I good. I uh, I thought it was interesting that Job, as righteous as he is, blamed questioned God and. It, kind of helps me a little bit because it doesn't t- take very much but a trivial trial to get me to right. question God. Yeah. I'm kind of ashamed of that, but that's just the way it is, but I'm uh yeah, that's I given the the commonness of this theme in scripture, it appears to be common to all flesh. Um we I I in one sense the, the common characteristics of man are writ large across little children. I mean, there's nothing my little children are doing that isn't everything I'm doing, except I'm way more subtle at it. They do it obviously, and so I'm much more sophisticated and complicated than the way I pity myself. You know, my child will just cry because he didn't get a cookie, you know. There's no, me, and, you know, we, but there's nothing that's going on in their hearts that isn't going on in our hearts. There's nothing that Job is wrestling with that you and I are not wrestling with as well. Sir. Uh, yeah, first of all, I think it's the masochist that enjoys suffering. Okay. But I take no pride in knowing that, I guess. <laughs> uh, I'd just like to say that I think my favorite part in Job is when God finally shows up in the whirlwind mm. and he. First, he says, who are you to question me, basically, and then recites all of the wonders of his creation. Where were you when I laid out the foundation right. and created the clouds? It's just he shows up in all of his glory. No, his, his basic argument is, do you see my wisdom and do you see my skill and my handiwork all around you? Is that the work of a madman or a sadist? I, I guide the stars out. Do you think I know what I'm doing with you, Job? I, I laid the foundations of the earth. Do you think I know what I'm doing with you, Job? I hunt the prey for the lion. Do you think I know what I'm doing with you, Job? I, the birds cry to me, and I feed them in their season. Do you think I know? And that's basically... So he doesn't actually ever tell Job what he's doing. I mean, that's the other thing. God does not say, okay, Job, let me explain to you. Satan and I were having a conversation, and I was actually highlighting how faithful you were, and he questioned your faithfulness, and I wanted to show him how faithful you were. Job never gets that answer. The reader does. We get the bigger context. When God shows up to Job, all he does is lays out the evidences of his wisdom and his power and says, in light of that, Job, are you really prepared to question me? And Job backs down, as he should, and says, I've, I've spoken more than I should. I put my hand over my mouth. That's the ultimate answer God gives Job. So we get a bigger answer. There's plenty of good stuff God's doing. Job just gets, I know what I'm doing, Job. Yes, you with me? That's the answer Job gets. It's, it's remarkable. I mean, understand, we get so much more information in the story of Job than Job ever got. Zeb, microphone. So, um, Mary brought up a good point. What is the, how do we compare... David, who basically, we're, we're kind of left at the end of this hanging, more or less like, please make this stop, make this stop, make this stop, versus Paul, who says, I asked three times, God said no, okay, I'm done. Well, he asked three times, and he got a verbal answer from God. My power is perfected in your weak. I mean, in other words, if you ask for something and God answers you, you probably should stop praying about it. But I'm just saying, from everything else in Scripture, with Jesus and the persistent widow and everything, I would not... Sometimes, as a, as a Calvinistic you know, type of guy, you, I prayed once, God knows. I mean, why even bother praying? He knows. Jesus is like, be like the persistent widow. Keep praying. Give me justice. Give me justice. Give me justice. Give me justice. I neither fear God nor man, but because of her, I'm going to... 
Yeah. So I, I would not want to put a, a yoke on anybody as long as the other half is there. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. I would not say, haven't you been praying that enough? I, I wouldn't, you know, when you get to tell someone, stop praying for your kid's salvation. Haven't you prayed that enough? Don't you think God knows? Phil, you've been praying for the relief long enough. No, keep, keep coming. Keep coming. Being ready to receive the other. And if God answers you and says, my power is perfected in weakness, no, then you should definitely stop. That's, that's the only difference I'd, I'd make is Paul got a very clear verbal answer. So, yeah. We got form five minutes. Anybody else? Five minutes. Oh, Ron. Do we know how long uh, Job suffered with his physical ailments? No. I don't think we... I mean, you could try to figure out how long this discussion and dialogue took, and it probably spread out maybe over days or weeks would be my guess. But um, I don't know. There's no real time. We get the timetable initially. They show up. They sit in silence for seven days. Then they start dialoguing. And then the Lord shows up. But, I mean, I have absolutely no idea. No, we don't know. We don't know. I imagine they'd go home. This isn't years later. They're still there. So, so I, I imagine it, we're talking days, weeks, months. Not bigger than that, but I don't know. So. Anybody else? Oh, Elsa. Elsa, yeah. I have a fun question. When um, the Pharaoh was plagued, you know, Egypt was yeah. plagued, when, with the frogs, when Moses... When Moses said to Pharaoh, God will stop the frogs, he said, by when do you want that stopped? And he said, tomorrow. Why would he want to spend one more night with all those frogs? Why didn't he say immediately? Wow, that is... Uh... <laughs> Three minutes. I don't... Here's the short answer. Don't know. Pharaoh, Pharaoh did a number of things that I didn't understand. Let me, let me um, turn to Psalm 40. Before things get better, they're going to get worse. Um, no, I've noticed that before as well. It's almost like his stubbornness. Like, I'm not too upset about the frogs uh, tomorrow. Good, good. We're going to Psalm 44 next. Psalm 39 at least has David acknowledging sin. Um, Psalm 44, which is what we're going to be looking at next week, is rougher still. And of course, because it's as long as it is, um, it's 26 verses, we have to move quickly, but I just want to highlight for you and get you chewing on 44, because in 44, the, the, uh, the anguish is over. We've basically saying, we've been faithful. We have not abandoned you. So why have you apparently abandoned us? Um, let me just read Psalm 44. I want to... O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days. In the days of old, you with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them. But your right arm, and your right hand, and your arm, and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God, ordained salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes, and you have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Salah. In the past, Lord, you were faithful to us. In the past, Lord, you delivered us. In the past, we conquered through you and your name. We did not put trust in our own strength and might, and you showed up and gave us the victory. Verse 9, 
But you have rejected us and disgraced us. You have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter. You have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughing stock among the peoples. All day long, my disgrace is before me, and the shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunt and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. You've broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart, yet for your sake we are killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget your affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down in the dust and our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. And that, here's a hint, I think, of the resolution. Is, does anyone know where one of those verses gets quoted in the New Testament? Romans 8, in the midst of the context of what can separate us from the love of Christ, neither death nor height, nor weapons nor powers, nor things past, nor things to come, as it is written, for your sake we're killed. I think what Paul's saying, man, you guys are getting a leg up on next week, is even in the darkest scenario where it looks like God has utterly forsaken you, nothing has separated you from his love in Christ. I think that's the point of quoting this passage, but it's, it's a hard... It makes it clear there will be times where it looks like, despite your faithfulness, it will look like God has abandoned you. And again, there are psalms for those times as well. Um, And so as we make our tour through the psalms, I'm just trying to cover varying themes, and this is one of the bleakest ones. It's not the bleakest. There's at least one or two bleaker than that, but it's up there. Um, And God has songs for his people to sing even when they look around in their faithfulness, and it looks as though God has abandoned them. That's next week. Thank you all. I'll see you then. God bless.